it's ambiguous. And the ambiguity to me is really what counts here. And the fact that the, the truth is in the eye of the beholder, and, uh, and it's a truth in the sense of the, the lesson that we want to take from the book, in the way we activate ourselves as interpreters, as readers. Welcome to another episode of the Mouse Book Club. Today, we are going to be discussing The Decameron by Boccaccio. This is an edited version of a live Must Book Club meeting. If you want to join these meetings live, just go to mustbookclub.com. We send the links out to all of our subscribers. Our very special guest for this episode is Professor Massimo Riva. Massimo is the chair of the Department of Italian Studies at Brown University, where he also serves as the director of the Virtual Humanities Lab. This conversation ran a little bit long, so I'm going to keep the introduction to a minimum and get right into it. Can you tell us a little bit about your introduction to Boccaccio and why the Decameron became such an important book for you? You know, I grew up in Italy and I went to high school there and college later. The Decameron uh, was not included in the curriculum uh, as opposed to Dante's comedy uh, for obvious reasons. They didn't consider it uh, sort of a, a book uh, uh, for a young reader. Uh, so I had... Um, I read a few stories uh, uh, in when I was in high school, and then later I rediscovered the Cameron when uh, when I started to teaching it, uh, and that happened only later in my career uh, when I uh, came to Brown in 1990, so 30 years ago. You know, I was educated as a as a specialist in modern uh, you know philosophy and literature, so. Boccaccio and medieval literature was not really part of my expertise, but I it so happened that I was asked to teach a course uh, about uh, the Decameron and uh, rereading it uh, or reading it for the first time as a, as a whole uh, and having to teach it uh, immediately made me fall in love with it. And in fact, I kept reading it. I've been uh, reading it for 30 years on and off. Of course, I've been teaching it for 30 years on and off. You know, it's a, it was a rediscovery. What was it that you fell in love with? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating work of fiction. It's so complex, you know, 100 stories told by 10 uh, young Florentines escaping the, the Black Plague uh, in the mid-14th century, 1348 plague that killed two-thirds of the population in Florence. So this the setting and the setup is, is already a fascinating one particularly for a young reader. Ten storytellers isolating themselves in a countryside. They belonged clearly to affluent families from, uh, from uh, Florence at that time. And so some of them own villas in the countryside and they are, are able to escape the city uh, and retreat uh, in this beautiful uh, setting, gardens, etc. And they decided to play this game uh, game of storytelling and uh, at first uh, it's a way to pass time and then later it becomes a way of organizing their life in the retreat let's say in lockdown uh, entirely around uh, storytelling so and storytelling is uh, is really the focus and uh, and what makes uh, this book uh, truly special 
when you read the book, it really feels like he's creating his own world. Oh yes, absolutely. You're right. You know, it's it's uh, interesting because, uh, of course, the book begins with an introduction by the author, by Boccaccio himself, the author narrator, who talks in very great and specific details about the the plague. You know, he's an eyewitness and uh, also mentions uh, the the effects of the plague on the, this great city and beloved city of Florence uh, at the time and how people behaved you know uh, in during the plague and how society crumbled and these beautiful houses were abandoned uh, so the devastating effects that the plague had on uh, on the city but after the the 10 young uh, narrators leave the city and go to the countryside and the plague kind of disappears from their stories, uh, which is a re- very interesting and quite, uh, um, uh, you know... Kind of a remarkable detail. Right, right. And it doesn't disappear entirely. There are a few mentions of the plague. There is a character in particular who dies explicitly. We are explicitly told that she died of the plague, etc. But otherwise, and there are plenty of deaths, you know, uh, and uh, illnesses uh, in 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 the stories, but the plague as such disappears. So, in a sense, uh, the, the contrast is very strong. You know, is a book uh, is considered one of the masterpieces of plague literature, but uh, the stories are kind of a, uh, are supposed to be a distraction, you know, from the plague, uh, sort of taking our attention, um, you know, away from uh, from this particular setting that provides the backdrop to the book. And so this is a very interesting setup. This this idea that uh, the plague uh, is there, ominously dominates the book, but is also absent, uh, you know, and uh, uh, looms uh, over the, so many of the stories, etc. But it's also uh, storytelling is also an act of forgetting, uh, you know, to some extent. You know, they, the narrators want to to uh, you know to to forget about the at the same time, you mentioned, you know, in this uh, in this ideal uh, situation, these beautiful gardens, uh, etc., where they are uh, now living for the time frame is exactly two weeks. They stay away from from the city for exactly two weeks, and uh, the they spend this time, uh, you know, uh, merrymaking. I mean, they dance, they sing, they eat beautifully in the garden, <laughs> and uh, and then they sit down and in a circle and tell stories to each other. And this is a way also of organizing an ideal society to some extent, a microcosm, etc., in response again to the devastation, the chaos uh, that the plague has, uh, has created in the city. And then at the end of these two weeks, Supposedly, uh, they they return to the city and uh, and now they're probably uh, ready to rebuild to some extent or to or to rejoin society uh, again. What do we know about Bukachi's life and what is he like in your imagination? Well, it's an interesting uh, inter- interesting biography because Bukachi was the illegitimate son of a merchant uh, from uh, Certaldo, which is a little town not far from uh, from Florence. And he was an illegitimate son, but uh, his father, uh, who worked for one of the bank uh, conglomerates, uh, you know, at the time that the 14th, 15th century is the time when, you know, uh, this new mercantile society and the new 
and banking is actually invented, at least in the Western world, etc., between Florence and Siena and so on and so forth. So he was an illegitimate son. His father worked for uh, the Bardi family uh, enterprise, etc., etc. The father uh, was sent to Naples when Boccaccio was only uh, 14 years old. Uh, an apprentice. So, he, you know, at that time, you started schooling early. Uh, and uh, so he had already had uh, education because uh, uh, his father decided to uh, to recognize him, even though he was illegitimate, uh, probably the son of a, of a servant in, uh, in the household. Uh, that happened quite often at that time. But the father, uh, you know, decided to make him part of the family. And fed later on, during the play, when uh, many members of his family, including his stepmother, died in the plague, he became kind of the, the head of the household, etc. But so he went down to, to Naples, uh, and he spent years in Naples as an apprentice to his father, So and but also uh, had a chance to become acquainted uh, with uh, the aristocracy in, in, in Naples. So he had this sort of a double life. During the day, he would attend the banking desk uh, uh, of, uh, of the Bardi Society. And from there, it was kind of an observatory for him. He was able to look at uh, the society of his time. And Naples at that time was a bustling city with a, a lot of bizarre, interesting characters coming and going, etc. So it was, it was the perfect observatory for him to, uh, to look at society and reality, etc. And then, but on the other hand, he was also uh, part of the elites, uh, you know, uh, through his father and through, uh, uh, you know, this role that they had as bankers to the Angevin king of Naples. And so at that time, he had the taste of a perfect ideal society in the gardens of the, of the royal palace. Uh, king Robert had one of the uh, most important libraries of the time, so he was able to, to study there, to to spend time and uh, one of the pastimes of the young arist aristocrats in this setting was uh, uh, storytelling and reading together French romances in particular and spending time in sort of this sort of a, a flirtatious and uh, and uh, and very refined uh, uh, social setting. So he had a taste of this ideal society that then he reproduced to some extent in the Decameron with the with the. Uh, you know, the 10 narrators who sort of established this ideal society again in the garden again. Could we talk a little bit about the role of Christianity in Boccaccio's society? Yes. Uh, I mean, I mentioned the Divine Comedy before. And by the way, Divine Comedy is Boccaccio, who was an admirer of Dante, in fact, uh, who coined the, the adjective. Uh, Dante called his work only comedy, but... Uh, it became divine comedy because Boccaccio called it so, uh, and uh, divine because he speaks about things, or you know, the afterlife and things divine, but divine also because of its literary uh, quality as a masterpiece, uh, you know, etc. So, but uh, Boccaccio had an ambivalent, to say the least, relationship toward uh, religion, uh, um, at least in an early part of his life. Uh, uh, the Decameron the, the uh, is an interesting book from this point of view. He certainly was not fond of priests and monks. We could talk a lot, you know, where many characters uh, in the Decameron are these kind of scoundrels, <laughs> monks and, 
and priests uh, who don't behave like um, uh, monks and priests should uh, should behave, etc., etc. Some of them are very sympathetic characters, you know, and, uh, and but but certainly they they don't represent a religious belief, etc., etc. They they're humans like all the characters in the Decameron, and they are frail. And, but Boccaccio had also some personal uh, animosity uh, against uh, against this representative of the established religion, you know, like Dante, who put popes in, the, in hell, so there was an attitude. But uh, so uh, I would say that Boccaccio represents a more, a more secular dimension of Florentine culture, and uh, as opposed to Dante, it also comes from a generation later. And the, the play had a, a role in this uh, ambivalent attitude toward religion. In fact, uh, I think your, your little book has the first story of the Cameron, no? uh, the story of Sir Ciappelletto. And it's a very representative story from this point of view, because uh, if you recall, Ciappelletto is, this, uh, is a merchant himself, is an agent of a merchant, of a powerful merchant, is a, but is also a criminal. You know, is the worst man who ever lived, as Boccaccio says. He's uh, uh, you know, a murderer, a forgerer. Uh, so all the things, all the qualities that uh, a merchant should not have, or you know, uh, but also is homosexual. But notwithstanding the fact that he is uh, the worst man who ever lived, he uh, during the story he, uh, in a very ironic way, turns into a saint. You know, if you remember, he's about to die and staying with a, a couple of merchants in Burgundy, uh, where he was on a mission to to uh, have them pay their debt to his master. And uh, and he falls ill and is about to die. And may, maybe the plague or maybe not the plague, etc. But uh, but so he says, well, I want to. I want to do, uh, my last act is going to be a good deed for these two uh, merchants. And he says, call a priest and, and I want to confess and confess all my sins. Uh, the confession is a great piece of theater because, of course, uh, is, uh, is, um, is confessing very, uh, very venial sins compared to all the horrible sins that he committed in his life. Um, and 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 is forgiven uh, for the sins, and he dies as a saint, and is adopted by this the city uh, populace as a saint. So this the worst man who ever lived who becomes a saint is a very ironic take on religion. And it's interesting in the commentary to the story, Boccaccio says, "Well, look, this is the proof of how generous and how how much lo- God loves us, because if He chooses." In order to, uh, you know, to uh, as an intermediary, if he chooses this man, is you know it means that he really loves humanity, and uh, you know so there's a paradox here. So so it's a story that is very ambivalent because it could be read as an indictment and a mockery of the Church, of the Institute of Confession, and so on and so forth, of sainthood, uh, etc. But at the same time, he says, well, the narrator, Pamphilo, one of the three men, members of the Brigada, say, well, but look, this is another demonstration of, uh, of God's love for humanity. He can use any means. We cannot uh, really fathom, uh, you know, uh, the ways of the Lord. And this is clearly the way that, an allu- yeah. The way that you're describing it, 
makes me uh, laugh a little bit because it seems familiar to the kind of Italians that I know, you know? Um, and Wait, because they're all scoundrels or because... <laughs> well, they kind of, they kind of ride a, a line that's very much about tension between uh, being very serious, but then being very playful in a way. Yeah. And I was wondering how else do you think about um, him as like essentially an Italian author? Oh, quintessentially Italian author, in this, Why? This, point, this point of view. But precisely because of this, of what you just said, you know, this, uh, the comic attitude, the ironic attitude, uh, including ironic attitude towards the Catholic religion in particular. Some uh, scholars uh, see Boccaccio as, as almost as a precursor of, uh, of the Reformation. He was also close to the the orders, the so-called um, uh, beggar orders, you know, the, the Franciscans in particular. So we, we preached uh, uh, against the wealth of the church, uh, etc. They preached uh, poverty. And uh, he was a religious man. And later in life, in fact, he wanted to, uh, a friend to burn the Cameron because he sort of repented and wanted to. And, and of course, uh, sort of rejected all his early literary life. But so it, it has this attitude that many Italians have to all, you know, religion, you know, uh, we're all Catholic to some extent, at least the Italians, uh, you know, my generation. And yet uh, they are also uh, kind of uh, uh, ironic in their attitudes toward uh, very secular and uh, irony and laughter in particular, the, you know, uh, comedy is very much part, as you know, of, of Italian uh, a culture and Italian life. Boccaccio inaugurates that tradition. But also, laughter is uh, as a, a, a sort of a therapeutic value in the book, and this is an interesting aspect in compared with the with the plague. You know, I mean, the idea that uh, this book is is supposed to be also uh, some sort of a medicine, you know, for people who are you know. Uh, have, witnessing this this horrible pandemic instead of finding the the comic the ironic side of things is a cure uh, for the deep melancholy depression and uh, desperation speaking about the history of literary forms where poetry i'm i'm going to speak with broad brushes is is divine it's concerned with up, with what's up here whereas in and in particular when the novel is first taking hold as a literary form, I'm thinking of Boccaccio, but also of Rabelais. We see the roots in this medieval and early modern period of what that would come to characterize the novel later, irony, uh, low culture, the body, and so forth. Um, I wonder if you can contextualize that kind of, what kind of standing would have a work of fiction like this have had in the literary discussion at the time? Well, interesting because uh, a, a work of fiction written in vernacular Italian also, this is the, the great novelty and the importance of Boccaccio and Dante and Petrarch, uh, Petrarca, who wrote, uh, uh, you know, founding uh, works of Italian literature in Italian in vernacular at the time. So it's uh, the genre and the language intertwined that, that, that you know that are, are the, the novelty here. And as far as uh, prose is concerned, you know Boccaccio invents really out of uh, I would say uh, you know 
of course, there were traditions he, he refers to and he even borrows from, but he really codifies uh, the novella, as we call it. So the, sh the short story uh, or, you know, the, 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 the short novel. So the Cameron could be considered a novel you know, as a whole, but in fact is a collection of stories a collection of stories that is organized in a very structural way, so which perhaps makes it uh, a novel, you know, like the Canterbury Tales, of course, later, and so on and so forth. So, so it is really the first of its kind. The stories uh, came to Boccaccio from many different traditions, but he was a collector you know, of, of stories uh, and, and also a translator uh, stories and double not only because he uh, translated them into the Italian, uh, you know, the vernacular Italian that was at the time as a literary language being shaped by the likes of Dante Boccaccio, you know, but also but also uh, translated into this form that uh, that I just mentioned. So codifying the form in a way. I mean, what is fa fascinating about the, the camera is that. Uh, uh, the 100 stories cover a great variety of uh, so within the form of the novella uh, there is um, indeed a, a great multiplicity of ways of storytelling is a codifier uh, in the sense that he invents this genre uh, that then will become canonical and will become important in Italian literature etc and will actually provide sources for Shakespeare and all the theater, you know, in the 16th century in particular, etc. So, you know, is is kind of a pioneer of the the storytelling in this particular form. The the novella, the, the short story, is really Boccaccio's contribution to world literature. I would say. We're publishing this book as part of a series, and the the theme of the series is solitude. And this was the, the word that we wanted to work with back in March when all of this started happening. And um, this, this book is included in a collection with the Enchiridion by Epictetus and then an essay on walking by Henry David Thoreau. What's fascinating about this for me is that it's a book about solitude in companionship. And storytelling is the glue that keeps the companionship alive. Um, and so if we adopt that to a 21st century environment, you're interested in virtual spaces, you know, you're in, in a number of ways. Storytelling is, is a form of virtual reality. Um, as you look ahead, how do we cope with solitude with storytelling in virtual spaces like this one, but also the virtual space of our minds and, and so-called traditional forms of storytelling? What, what's your personal opinion on all this? Uh, well, uh, it's a very challenging question, you know, but, uh, but, you know, it's interesting that Boccaccio conceived the book as a gift in the proem. It talks about this uh, and a gift, uh, specifically a gift to, to his ideal readers who are women. Why women? Because women, uh, of course, it's ironic. There's a lot of, uh, you know, tongue in cheek, etc. in this, but, uh, but because women, as he describes them uh, at that time, would be cooped up in their rooms and, uh, and, and often in solitude. And, uh, and so the only uh, pastime and the only distraction they could have while their husbands and brothers would travel the world in their mercantile enterprises, etc., 
they the only pastime they had would, was reading you know and reading uh, and of course uh, uh, so, you know not every uh, woman in in Florence in the 14th century was literate you know and so there is uh, again this was a book that was uh, uh, a gift for a, a very specific kind of uh, uh, of woman but the fact that it was written in, in the vernacular was also uh, uh, a way of making accessible to this particular ideal readership. So there is a connection, an intimate connection with uh, with solitary reading in the very uh, in the very conception of the book. Then there is the fiction of the uh, ten narrators, and uh, their storytelling uh, becomes a very socialized uh, activity. Uh, so I think the book has, you know, of course we can we read the book we can read it in solitude or read it together. And uh, uh, the classroom is the perfect uh, example of, uh, of a socialized space of reading. Uh, and of course that socialized space nowadays can be also replicated in virtual ways. And, but reading as an activity uh, is still a solitary uh, pleasure, no? I mean, it's very hard for me, even uh, though next semester I'm gonna teach a class in, entitled Simulating Reality, which is a, a class on virtual reality. Basically, I teach it with a colleague who's an experimental psychologist. So we look at the, uh, either the perception of three-dimensional space uh, from a cultural, historical, but also from, a, from a, you know, a scientific point of view, experimental point of view. But to me, it's very hard to separate this, these two dimensions. And uh, as far as reading is concerned in particular, I mean, I think the book uh, as a physical object is really designed for, uh, I think this solitary uh, activity, uh, you know, while our social uh, virtual spaces are designed for discussing, debating, confronting our interpretations, our take on the stories, the book, etc., etc. So there are two complementary dimensions. We have to keep in mind that these are the two sides of the coin that they are intimately uh, tied to each other. So we read in order to, you know, bring our experiences as readers uh, to in a public space, if you wish. Um, but reading is also a private uh, uh, activity and it's very important as such, you know, for, for us as individuals. Massimo, uh, I have a question. Of, of the yes. other stories in the Decameron, are there other ones outside of the ones that to pay attention to or they have special significance? Your there favorites? are so many, <laughs> so many, so many. No, I would mention the last one. There's, this is the first one and the last one. They are two of the most provocative stories. And, uh, you know, the first story is about this, the worst man who, you know, becomes a saint. So this paradoxical situation. And the last story is equally paradoxical. Uh, you know, the last day of the Cameron is the last day before the 10 members of the Brigade, uh, you know, uh, decide that it's time to return to the city, etc. So it's a day in which... Uh, the story has a, have a very important theme, which is that of generosity, magnanimity, all the qualities, the virtues that uh, are necessary in order to rebuild a society uh, as opposed to, you know, greed and, uh, and you know, and envy, uh, jealousy, power, thirst, etc., that were displayed in many of the stories. So the last day is just all these wonderful stories about examples 
of generosity, magnanimity in various contexts, etc. And then comes one of the three men in the in the young man in the Brigata, with uh, all three are alter egos of Boccaccio, you know, and they, they were, all three represent a different side of Boccaccio as the author, narrator, etc. The narrator of the last story is his name is Dioneo. Is really the uh, you know the one who tells the most provocative story, the one who doesn't want to stick to the theme of the day, but he wants a privilege for himself to tell a story that is nothing to do with the theme of the day, uh, sort of disrupts. And uh, so he's a kind of a and is the Joker, and his stories are provocative also because many of them has a, have a sexual context uh, content. So, but the last story he tells is a really a puzzling story. A story that uh, you know because it's a story of a of a marquis who spends his youth hunting with um, hawks and and uh, all the different activities that uh, male activities that you know aristocrats at that time would uh, practice etc and doesn't think about marrying but uh, his friends his family etc want want him to marry. And he say, and at some point he decides to that yes, if he has to marry, he wants to marry uh, the person he chooses, and he chooses this peasant girl that he saw a few times, uh, you know, uh, while he was uh, riding his horse in the countryside with his uh, friends, etc. She's beautiful, and uh, so he decides to marry, and everybody is kind of taken aback, you know, you know why he would do such a thing. But the rest of the story is quite disturbing, and and uh, and uh, you know, and uh, because uh, he, after marrying her uh, and making her a noble woman, he decides to subject her to a series of tests, the ultimate tests. These tests are really terrible. I really, I mean, he, for instance, uh, they have two children together. He takes the children away from her. She's like a, uh, she's accepting all the arbitrary act of meanness that uh, the or cruelty that the husband uh, is uh, subjecting her to uh, like a, some sort of a she job you know thinking of the job figure in the bible etc so she accepts anything that the husband subjects her to like taking the children away and clearly she thinks that they are going to be killed by humiliating her to the point of uh, at some point saying, you know, I don't want you as a wife anymore. Go back where you came from. Take off, you know, your nice uh, fine clothes that I gave you and now wear your rags again and, and, and go away. And she accepts. She accepts patience. She's an example of this forbearance and this kind of, even to the point of my students saying, but why is she so passive? Why she is not, you know, sort of, and and so it's really puzzling. Why, uh, uh, what is the meaning of this story? In the end, of course, he reinstates her in a ceremony in which uh, she is supposed to come back to the house and become a servant to the new wife. The ultimate humiliation and go back to the house where she was, you know, the mistress and becoming a servant. But of course, it's all a, a ruse because the, the new wife is actually their daughter. And uh, what he does, uh, you know, uh, the ceremony instead turns into this sort of a gesture on the part of the Marquis 
to giving back the children to his wife, reinstating her as his wife, as a legitimate wife, and uh, basically acknowledging the fact that he was uh, has been extremely cruel, but extremely cruel by design. And that's why I wanted to subject her to these tests. And she passed the tests because she accepted everything <laughs> uh, that I did to her. And, uh, and uh, now that she passed, she can be my, my wife again. So what is the meaning of this story? Well, some scholars say, well, uh, you know, uh, Griselda, the name of this woman, uh, is, represents Florence during the time of the plague. And the Marquis represents. Uh, the wrath of God, if you wish, and uh, but that's an explanation that per personally I don't particularly like. The you know the, it's an allegorical, you know, sort of symbolic explanation. But I think there there are others uh, equally good explanations. What's an explanation that you like? Well, I mean, it's it's uh, the explanation I like is that it's really uh, a challenge for us to provide our own reading and our own interpretation. In fact, when I'm in, in class with my students, I, I never provide uh, an explanation for, for, for this story, but, uh, but I encourage students to come up with their own. I haven't read the whole book, you know, to come up with their own explanation. We put Boccaccio on trial. Is Boccaccio a feminist? After all, many, many of the most important characters uh, in, in the stories are women, and, you know, there are some examples of wonderful examples of women who actually take an active role agency and react and then do things and uh, stand their own ground and you know in a wonderful way or is he really a misogynist and this is the demonstration that this is you know that this book is a is a misogynist book so it's ambiguous and the ambiguity to me is really what counts here and the fact that the you know, if you if you wish, the truth is in the eye of the beholder, and, uh, and it's a truth in the sense of the the lesson that we want to take from the book, uh, in the way we we uh, activate ourselves as interpreters, as readers, etc. Some readers could consider, you know, um, outrageous to some extent, an outrageous way of of concluding a book dedicated to women, a book which is purportedly a a gift to women uh, to to uh, to console them of their melancholy and depression. I mean, this story clearly is no consolation, etc. <laughs> you know, so, but this is why it's the provocation is is what I think counts here, and uh, any interpretation to some extent is is legitimate. And so, regarding the women that this book is supposedly written for, this gift to them, what kind of message do you think this is sending to them, or was sending to them, or was this representative of some of their own circumstances? Was this normal during that time period, so that it could be considered humorous? It goes back to the the ambiguity. In fact, in his, even the dedication to women, you know, could be considered ironic. The book uh, is, uh, as I said, it can be considered a therapy consolation and uh, for for these readers uh, but also a manual you know if you want to learn the ways of the world uh, i'm gonna perhaps uh, teach you or provide some clues on how to behave in situations that uh, are very realistic the way that the condition of women is described in in this book is very realistic for the times i mean there is no sweetening the pill it's a very ambiguous book I would say that uh, 
uh, is always challenging for uh, um, my students, uh, in particular women students, to, to come to terms to, with this ambiguity. And uh, Boccaccio himself, uh, at the end, in the conclusion to this book, that says, my, my tongue is so sweet that anything I say can be forgiven. But I must say that when we put Boccaccio on trial in my class, often it comes out, uh, if not absolved, at least forgiven. So we have to, to think about what the ultimate uh, value of storytelling is here. You know, it's considered one of the masters of Western realism, precisely because it doesn't sugarcoat things. Uh, and the irony helps even when the irony is at the expenses of women. Uh, the, the ambiguity, the, the tongue-in-cheek, the irony, etc., clearly makes it still very interesting and very actual, even though it's describing situations that are abhorrent to us, you know, as modern readers. Thus concludes this meeting of the Mouse Book Club. Special thanks to our guest, Massimo, for his generous contributions. You can find out more about his wonderful work by Googling Decameron Web Project or Virtual Humanities Lab at Brown University. Please remember to stop by mousebookclub.com and check out our book selection. Of course, most books make great gifts, so shop liberally. Special thanks to Tom and Colin and the rest of the team over at Lake County Press in Waukegan, Illinois who print all of our books, and thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment and rate us, and if you can, just a couple extra seconds and leave a review. It helps the algorithm bump the show, and hopefully more people will discover us. Or better yet, just take a second and send a link to a reading enthusiast in your life. Thanks again, and please join us next week. Mm-hmm.